do a Christmas card. So that's kind of the way we roll. So anyway, that's all the announcements today. Let's turn to Matthew 8. Matthew chapter 8 is where we are going to find ourselves, and we're going to pick up in the 23rd verse of uh, the book of Matthew. But as we uh, make our way that direction, and we are going to be looking at uh, Jesus calming the storms, and, and the title of the message is Riding the Storm Out. Anytime I can get an REO Speedwagon title into a message, I'm going to do it. So I'm pretty shameless about plugging a little bit of REO. So you've got to keep it real with the Central Illinois people. But we're going to be looking at Jesus calming the storm today. But before we do, let me just remind you that the gospel according to Matthew was written uh, topically, not chronologically. And that's important for all you Bible students because if you're looking at the synoptic gospels of Mark and Luke, uh, remember sin uh, means similar, uh, optic means opsis or to view. So they're similar views, but Mark and Luke are written uh, more chronologically versus uh, Matthew, which is written topically. And so I bring that up because you might think things are getting out of order a little bit. But Matthew is writing uh, very intentionally to show Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's displaying Jesus as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And the key word as we work through the book of Matthew is the word Fulfilled. He uses this word over and over again because if Jesus is to be the Messiah, he must fulfill prophecy. Beginning in chapter 1 with his lineage, he must be from the tribe of Judah, which is why he puts a genealogy at the beginning of his book. And his birth must be miraculous, right, in, in accordance to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9. And so we see these prophecies fulfilled speaking of the Messiah. And when we got to chapter 4, what we see is the overview of his ministry. That he was going to first be a teacher, and then a preacher, and then he was going to be a healer. And so what do we find when we get to chapters 5-7? through seven? If he's going to be a teacher and a preacher, he must start by teaching and preaching. So Matthew 5-7 through seven is the first sermon that's recorded of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we looked at that, and what Jesus was sharing with the audience at large was what the kingdom of heaven would be like. He shared, he spoke of the kingdom of heaven, and the key there is righteousness is going to reign. Things are going to be set right. And so he shares with the people how the kingdom can actually be now through you and I, that blessed is the man that does these things, that the kingdom can actually exist in you and I, but from 5 through 7, he's speaking of what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Then chapters 8 through 9, he shows them what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. As he begins a, a series of 10 different healings, we looked at the first three last week when we saw a leper that was healed. We saw uh, then a, a Gentile servant was healed and then a woman, Peter's mother-in-law. So with all three of these, these were all people that were considered outsiders to the Jewish elite. A person that was a leper was actually called outside the camp, which is, by the way, not good if you're outside the camp. Uh, a Gentile servant. It, this was not only a Gentile dog, but this was the servant of a Gentile dog. How dare Jesus heal this person? And then a female. Women were viewed as property predominantly in Israel. And so Jesus goes out of his way to essentially get people out of their comfort zone. Something that he still does, by the way, to this day. He goes out of his way to get us 
out of our comfort zone. And for many of us, that makes us, well, uncomfortable. <laughs> Why? Because we like comfort. Right? Comfort effectively becomes an idol to us. That we, we view things like vacations and my feet propped up watching football. All these things, we don't want Jesus to mess with this thing because it makes me so happy and so comfortable and yet I'm not a light to Jesus because I'm too busy being comfortable. And so this is what Jesus is doing intentionally in this spot as he's trying to get them out of their comfort zone and show that he came because he loved the world, not just the religious elite. So that's where we find ourselves then in verse 23. He's just come off this scene where uh, groups of people have received miraculous healings. And so he's going to direct the disciples to get into the boat. And in verse 23, if you want to pick up with me there in Matthew chapter 8, now when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, so that men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And so the first question we must ask is, what kind of storm is this? Like, what in the world is taking place with this storm? And the reason I, I pose that question, it's because these guys, remember, were predominantly fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, which, a little side note, isn't actually a sea at all. It's really a freshwater lake in northern Israel where the waters of the Jordan River flow in and then back out of. And so it wasn't truly a sea, but interestingly, from a geographic standpoint, because the Sea of uh, Galilee sits down in a bowl some 400 feet below sea level, uh, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee sits the Jordanian Desert. And off the Jordan uh, Desert blows a, a warm, dry air blows over the top of the Sea of Galilee, but then on the west of the Sea of Galilee is the Mediterranean, which brings in moist, cooler air. And so you can only imagine what takes place when the two collide in this little low-lying lake. It creates some tremendous storm activity. Now, all that to say, uh, this wasn't the first storm these guys had ever experienced on the Sea of Galilee. These kind of things take place. Uh, in, in fact, if you go with us, a shameless plug for the Sea of Galilee, there'll be times where you'll see the thing just as flat as a sheet of glass. It's beautiful. And then just a few hours later, boy, all of a sudden, this wind comes in, that wind comes in, and it looks like a raging ocean. So for these guys who were fishermen, it does strike us a little bit odd that they were so scared. In fact, even uh, what the Bible tells us in verse 24 is a great tempest arose. Now the word here that Matthew uses is tempest, which in Greek is the word seismos. The same word we get uh, our word seismic from. So telling us this wasn't just a typical storm that was taking place. It was a storm of seismic proportions. So violent was this storm that the ground literally shook and shook these guys right out of their shoes. Now, where was Jesus is the question. 
Well, he was, well, he was taking a nap, right? So Jesus apparently has a lot in common with my beautiful bride, right? Now, many of you are saying, yes, Angela is a very Jesus-like, much more than me. If you see her, you know, it's, it's obvious how much more Holy Spirit power she has than I do. But, but, but I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, uh, like Jesus, she can literally fall asleep anywhere. If she stops moving, even for a minute, any kind of vehicle too, it doesn't matter if it's a plane, a train, an automobile, a boat, she gets in there, sits down, and it's lights out, Frankie Angel. She is done for. This, apparently, is what happens uh, even to Jesus. Now, amazingly, this is not even a very uh, large boat. We think of it in our minds that, that Jesus is in some huge vessel and he's down in the cabin below. But I put a picture up here on the right for you. This is actually what's called the Jesus boat. It's in a museum off the Sea of Galilee. They discovered it just a few years ago, actually sunk down into the mud. So the boat was preserved because of the mud that was all over the top of it. They pulled it out and they've got it there in a museum and it's only about 26 feet long. So now here is the scene where you've got uh, 12 or so fishermen. They're all in this boat with Jesus, and, and the wind is going, and the waves are going. And the waves aren't just going. According to our Bible, the waves are covering the boat. Right? I don't know if you've been on a boat where the waves cover it, but that's generally bad. One time I was on a boat on Lake Shelbyville where we swore the storm was way off to the west, and we continued to mess around out there towards the Sullivan Marina, and we had to get back to Finley. And I will tell you, as I misjudged just how far away the weather was, that was a pretty scary ordeal. The wind and the water was blowing across the Bruce Finley Bridge as we motored our way around, and my wife knew me well enough to know I was going to get the boat in the dock at the Finley Marina, one way or another. Now, the dock might not be left by the time I got done getting the boat in the dock, but it was going to happen, baby. You better hang on. There's no no-wake zones here. And so we did manage to get the boat in there, but it was a scary ordeal. And that's exactly what's taking place for these guys, and yet Jesus is taking a nap. Which, by the way, proves a couple things. Uh, one, it proves that he was, in fact, human. Why does my wife fall asleep every time we get in a moving vehicle? Well, it's because she's exhausted. She's taking care of six kids. Well, maybe seven kids. You know, if you count me. So she's exhausted. He was exhausted. Remember, he was physically wiped out. The, these guys had just gone through days of teaching and then, uh, you know, the flocks of people coming in wanting to be healed. And so he was getting in a boat to get away to have a little bit of rest and relaxation. So what this does is it proves that he's human. Which, by the way, means that it's okay for you and I to need a little break every now and again. It's okay, it doesn't make us less manly or less spiritual if we every now and again just need a nap. But this also proves that Jesus is deity because he was able to sleep through this kind of storm. He was not worried, not even a little bit concerned, which just goes to prove that he was fully human and fully God. That even before getting up and calming the storms, he wasn't worried in the least bit. And these young Jewish boys should have known from their Bible, this is what Psalm 89 verse 9 says, 
You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. That was only written a thousand years before this event. And so, the disciples, they're in full-on panic mode. They even question whether or not Jesus cares about about them at all. In fact, if you want to turn with me to the right, Mark's gospel account, this is what he says in Mark chapter 4, verse 38. He says, but he was in the stern, this is being Jesus, asleep on a pillow. At least they got him a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? But they questioned, do you even care about us? Never mind the fact that he was in the boat too. They said, do you even care? I bring that up to say, lots of times, when we're in the middle of the storm, when we're out in the middle of the lake, and things look so bleak, don't we often question Jesus? Do you even care? Like, I'm out here flailing around trying to survive these things. Do you even care what's going on in my life right now? For the answer to that, let's continue on. But he, Jesus, said to them in verse 26, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? So the first thing he does as he gets up out of the boat is he rebukes not the wind and the waves. He rebukes his disciples. (laughs) He starts by saying, Where is your faith? And this is important for us to note that where fear exists, faith cannot. But that also means where faith exists, fear cannot. That fear squashes faith the same way that faith squashes fear. Now then, Jesus, after he's done rebuking them, he then turns to the wind and the waves and he says, be still. Peace be still is what we see in in Mark's account. This is what he mentions to them. And I bring that up to say, that Jesus actually uses less words to rebuke the wind and the waves than he does his disciples. Isn't that amazing? He uses more words on the men that are in the boat with him than he does on the wind and the waves. And I think that's because it takes more for Jesus to to change an unbelieving heart than it does for him to calm a supernatural storm. Isn't that amazing when we think about how how despicable our own hearts are? How much we can turn against Him? That it takes more to change us on the inside. It's more difficult to do that than it is to calm the wind and the waves. The other thing I want to point out is they forgot what He mentioned just a few verses before in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. They forgot this. And when... Jesus saw the great multitudes about him. He gave a command to depart to the other side. Now that seems like just a flyover kind of a verse. Jesus gave a command to depart to the other side. But do you understand what he was saying is, we're going to get to the other side. He didn't say, hurry, get in the boat so we can go out in the middle and sink. We can cry like a bunch of little girls and go all the way to the bottom of this thing. He didn't say that at all. He said, get in the boat and depart to the other side, which means they were going to get to the other side. 
And so often we forget that. When we're in the middle of the stormy event, we forget that he said, you're going to get to the other side. Now there are times in our lives where he is very clear about saying, uh, go this direction, do this thing, fulfill this promise, you're going to get to the other side. And then almost immediately, without a question, a storm shows up. And we wonder, what in the middle are we, what in the world are we doing in the middle of this water? How do we get out here? Lord, you said to go, we went. How on earth did we get to a wedding in Arizona when we're not going to go to a stinking wedding? How do these things happen? Lord, did we hear you wrong? And there are times, though, too, by the way, where we don't get the clear voice where to go or how to get there. We just know that this feels like the right thing to do. Lord, uh, this feels like this is the direction you're, gonna, you're, you're taking us. You didn't speak to me audibly and clearly, and yet we're going to go by faith onto this water, and we're going to continue. And here's the thing. Verse 27, the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? What they forgot, it wasn't the direction that they were headed. It was who was in the boat. It was who's in the boat. That so often we get all pent up about where we're headed and are we going the right direction? Did I hear the Lord right? Did I not? It doesn't matter if you have Jesus in the boat. If he's in the boat, here's the thing. It can't sink. Growing up as a kid in church, I heard this phrase over and over again that there's nothing impossible for God. There's nothing impossible. There's nothing that he cannot do. And I think they meant it to be correct. But the reality is there are things that are impossible for God. There are things that God cannot do like this. He cannot lie. He can't do it. His word is going to be fulfilled. He cannot go back on his word. And the other thing he cannot do, by way of example, is he cannot fail. He is incapable of failure. Me, I can fail a lot. Follow me around a little bit, I'll show you. I fail about everywhere I turn, it seems. And yet our God cannot fail. He will be successful once He sets out with us on a journey. And so even in the middle of the, of the storm, even in the middle of the seismic activity, the reality is one of my favorite verses in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 Turn with me there if you want to really quickly. It's uh, hang a right a little bit. Uh, go past Ephesians. Uh, this is highlighter worthy in your Bible. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. When you're in the middle of a storm, that's a verse you can hang on to. That's a piece of driftwood that you can grab a hold of if Kate Winslet's out there in the cold Atlantic, just kick her off of it because she's going to let you die, Leo. you got to hang on to that thing because what Jesus is saying, it's not dependent upon you or me completing it. What he says here in this verse is be confident of this thing that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to see that thing to the end. The boat is going to get to the other side because he said so. Now then notice with me how the men react. So they marveled. They marveled at him. 
That's the other thing I take out of this passage. I don't want to ever get to the point where I don't marvel at him. I don't marvel at his goodness. I don't marvel at his greatness. And the thing that he taught me a few years back, I was on a men's retreat where we were supposed to fast for 24 hours, which is tremendous, by the way, if you get the chance to do it, just out in the wilderness with no people around. And, and, and what uh, he shared with me, and this is not earth-shattering, but it was this, that the bigger we make God in our life, the bigger we make him, the smaller he shows up. <laughs> he shows up in the most uh, intricate, small, you know, just little idiosyncratic ways when we're out in the middle of his wilderness. He just shows up in these small ways where we can marvel at him. And yet the opposite is true. The smaller you make God in your life, the smaller you want to reduce him down and reduce him down, the bigger he's got to show up for you to even know he's there. He's got to show up in some big time ways to wow some people. So I would encourage you based on this, make God as big as you can. See him in everything in your life. See him in every possible corner and then you will never cease to marvel with who you have in the boat. Continuing on in verse 28, and when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, I'm sure I mispronounced that, there, met, there they met two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, What have you to do with us, you Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them was a herd of many swine feeding. And so the demons begged him, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And so, they had come, and so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Verse 33, And then those who had kept them fled, and went away to the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from the region. And so, in verse 28, what we see is Jesus coming off of this scene where the wind and the seas were calmed, to then they arrive to their destination on the other side of the shore, and they are met by two demon-possessed men. Now, for, again, for you Bible students that know your gospel accounts in Mark and Luke, you know that there was actually a one recorded person in those accounts, but Matthew records two. Now, some want to fly, fly the flag and go, wait a second, the Bible's not consistent. Well, let me first just tell you that oftentimes when people recorded stories, they would only pick out the predominant person in a group. And so it's very possible that Mark and Luke wrote about the most prominent one of these two men. And so that could be the case. But then also, important to point out that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And it's a really big deal in Jewish law that if you're going to tell a story and it to be proven a fact, you must have two witnesses. And so Matthew is a gospel of twos. I pointed it out a few weeks ago that over and over again, he points out two of a thing because he's trying to prove the point. He's trying to prove that this is true. 
And so what Matthew records is two men, and also interesting uh, is that this is just a few hours, possibly not even an hour, from the time these guys thought they were going to die in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Can you imagine? We often read these stories and we, we compartmentalize. We separate out this story, Jesus calmed the winds and the sea. Now he's going to heal the demon-possessed man. Do you realize this all happened in the same evening? Like, how amazing is this to travel with Jesus? This is full-on crazy town. He pulls up onto the shore, and here's a guy, demon-possessed, two men, perhaps, cutting themselves with stones, living in a graveyard, screaming all night, and oh, by the way, they're naked. That's a weird scene to pull on up to when you're these disciples. They've got to wonder, what kind of man are we following here? This is like a, a reality TV show. They pull up and they, they see these two men who have terrorized this little town of the Gergesenes for years. Year after year, this city had been plagued by these men. So these men were so violent that what we read in verse 28, no one could pass that way. They were afraid to even go out there because it was such a crazy scene. And yet the Son of God says, that's the place for me. I'll stop right there next. So they pull up into this spot, and what we find is something, at least I find fascinating, out of these demon-possessed men. Uh, do, do you notice what happens? Uh, first of all, uh, they believed in him. They called Jesus out as the Son of God, meaning they believed in Jesus. James would even say in James chapter 2, verse 19, that the demons believe and they tremble in fear of him. This is precisely what we see playing out in this story. But then secondly, what we find in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 5, I'll flip over there really quickly and just read it for you. Mark chapter 5, verse 6, when he saw Jesus, this is the demon-possessed man, afar off, he ran and worshipped him. The demons actually fell down and worshipped the Son of God. Amazing. Thirdly, they knew the Word of God. In Luke's account, Luke chapter 8, verse 31, this is his same account of the story, uh, verse 31, and they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss, the abuso. This is the, the eternal resting place for Satan and all his henchmen. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, what John would actually share is that after the thousand-year reign of Christ, when all these demons are, are shackled up and they are, they are held down there in Gehenna until the final time, the one last time they're allowed to come back up. And imagine this, by the way. After a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning, there'd be people that will still pick Satan over him. Isn't that amazing? It also shows you how much God loves free choice, that he's all about giving people a decision to make. Anyway, so after that, thousand years is up jesus is going to be done with them one last time that's it for you and they are thrown into the abyss i bring that up to say that even these demons knew which is why they said to jesus did you come to torment us before the time they knew that god's word was going to be fulfilled they knew there was only going to be a limited time for them thirdly and maybe the most fascinating of all is that they prayed in verse 31, if you cast us out, permit us, 
But they begged him. They prayed to God to send them into the swine. Now, I say all that, and I'm getting some really weird looks. Here's the big difference, though, between the demons and between us, is that we have a choice to obey. They had their choice. They made it. All these things are still true. (laughs) They still believed. They still worshipped. They still knew His Word was going to be fulfilled. They still prayed, and yet they chose to not obey Him, to not have them as their, not have Jesus as their master. So, before we panic, notice with me in verse 31, they begged Jesus, permit us to go away into the swine, even these demons, thousands of them, legion, a legion is what we were told in the Bible, 6,000 demons had to obey the word of Jesus. They couldn't go anywhere unless he said, it's okay. You're permitted to go there. And so before, again, we get all upset about demons, worried about demon possession, do you understand that the Holy Spirit cannot cohabitate with the demonic? He can't do it. So if the Holy Spirit resides in your vessel, that means Satan cannot reside there. No demon can possess someone that is possessed by the Holy Spirit. But it does not mean we cannot be oppressed by the demonic realm. We can very much be oppressed by Satan, but only to the degree which God allows it. So praise the Lord. He's still in control even of the demonic. Even of the things that seem like they're completely out of control. Now then, continue on with me in verse 32. We see, and he said to them, go... And so when they came out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd ran violently down the steep place and perished into the water. Notice with me, Satan's desire is always to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what he wants to do. As soon as these demons enter in, these demons, they destroy the swine. That's what Satan's uh, intention is, and yet... What we find in Mark chapter 5, again, a synoptic account, verse 15. This is the scene with the man who's just been released from demonic possession. Then they came, this is the people from town, to Jesus. And they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid because they knew that guy was crazy. But notice what Jesus brings to the table. Where Satan wants to kill and steal and destroy, Jesus wants to save and fulfill and to clothe. He is fully capable of completely rebuilding people who have let their lives go way too far. He is fully capable, and this is always what he's looking to do, to bring order back into the unorderly situation. This is precisely what happens in this scene. And yet, the pigs died. So what's the deal, right, with the pigs? I mean, I don't know, maybe you're not curious. I am. What, what did the pigs do wrong? I mean, doesn't God love bacon? Now, keep in mind where you're at in the Old Covenant. That at this point in time, the nation of Israel was still required to live underneath the Old Covenant and swine in particular was prohibited now thankfully we live under the 
new covenant. And thankful, thankfully, what Jesus told Peter in Acts 10 is, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean, and God made piggies clean, so enjoy all the bacon you want. Praise the Lord, we get to enjoy us some bacon and sausage. Thank you, Lord, for my breakfast this morning. The point wasn't the pigs, and it's not the bacon. The issue is compromise. So I'll take you back to the Old Testament, a little bit of story time. Hopefully I don't lose anybody with this. Back to the book of Numbers. So when we do our daily Bible reading, a place you're going to love is the book of Numbers, which, by the way, isn't just full of numbers. There's numbers at the beginning, numbers at the end, awesome stories in the middle. So don't get spun up by the book of Numbers. So in the book of Numbers, though, what happens is Moses is getting ready to bring the children of Israel up to the promised land. He can't go in, but he's going to give Joshua the command to go in. But as they're coming around, finally to this, uh, this area of promise, this land that's been promised to them by God, not for 40 years that they've been wandering around, but for 400 years from the time God told Abraham, I'm going to give you this land of promise. They're getting ready to enter in, and what happens is three tribes, technically two and a half, come up to Moses, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and they say, look, we know the promised land was given to our forefathers hundreds of years ago, but boy, the east side of the Jordan is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's got the Jordan River that's watering it. It's lush. Our, our uh, goats and all of our flocks, they love it over here. Our kids love it. We're good just staying over on this side of the Jordan River. We're going to hang out over here. Now Moses, because he's got a little bit of a temper problem, he gets very angry, but he does the right thing. He consults God about it, and God says, let them. Let them stay over there, but they have to come over and fight for the ground that was promised to them. So these two and a half tribes send all their fighting men in for seven years and fight for the ground that they weren't willing to actually live in. God allows them to then go back to the east side of the Jordan River where uh, they set up their home. Now, the Jordan River is an interesting body of water because every spring it floods, especially uh, more then than what it does now because they've uh, got so many flood channels to stop this. But in, in that time, in Jesus' day and age, it would get three, four, five times the size of its normal, uh, you know, normal banks. It would flood in the spring. And so if you remember, as we've talked a few different times, that the spring was considered uh, fighting season. This was like our baseball season. And so in the, in the spring of the year, the kings would come out to battle one another because it was too hard to keep an army going all winter long. You'd, keep, you'd lose too many soldiers. And so they'd quit killing each other in the winter. They'd go, all right, we're going to come back to hating you in the spring again. So spring would roll around. They'd want to come back and start the battle all over again, except... If you're in Israel, you've got the Jordan River now as a barrier, four to five times the size of its banks. And so any king with any kind of intelligence is going to look at that river and go, it's not worth the risk to try to cross that thing. I'm going to lose too many men to go in there and try to take any part of that land. And so what God did was he set up natural protection, except not for those who didn't want it. So wouldn't you know the first three tribes to get picked off by the enemy were Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. You see, what looked like it was the place for them was outside of God's will. He loved them enough to let them have it, but they were outside of His protection and the 
the compromise that they wanted to have because God's promises were good, but boy, this is, this is just fine right here. We're comfortable with where we're at. Well, compromise always leads to corruption. These were the first groups that fell to idol worship. They were the first ones picked off by the enemy. Swine was much the same way for the nation of Israel. God said, don't eat these animals, partially for health reasons. He knew they wouldn't know how to cook them properly. That part's true. But the other part that's true is that all the other pagan nations all around them, they use pigs in their worship to their false gods and their idols. And so what God was saying here is, I want you to be different. They're going to look in at your acts of worship and they're going to wonder, why don't you use pigs? Hey, what's wrong? Everybody loves a BLT. Like, what's wrong with you guys? They're going to look in and wonder, why are you different? What thing makes you so different? Which was precisely what God was hoping for out of his children so that people would wonder why you're so blessed. Why are you so different? Why is it God protects you and he doesn't protect us? We want to know more about your God. That's the reason he set them apart. So the nations wouldn't be condemned by them, which is what the religious elite wanted to do. They wanted to look down their nose and say, you're not good enough for us. We wouldn't stoop down to that level to eat and miss piggy. We're not doing it. No, God wanted them to say, come on up here. Know our God. Know the protections that we've got to know. And so how does all this relate to our life? I have to wonder how many times God's asked me to, to stop being a pig farmer. <laughs> because the thing is, to my neighbors, I look like the same kind of pig farmer that they are. There's nothing that separates me from them. Then why do they need to live like we live? Why, why would they want to go to all the trouble to being set apart, to being sanctified? That's what the word sanctification means. It means to be set apart. Not so we can be better than anybody, by no means. It's so that we can attract people to know the same God we know. So that we can bring them in. But you can't do that if you look like the same kind of pig farmer as everybody else. And so this is precisely what Jesus is doing. He's driving the pigs out of Israel. And then in verse 33, this is how they react. Then those who kept them, the pig farmers, fled and went away to the city and told everything, including, this is important, including that the demon-possessed man was healed. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. So here's Jesus. He saves this little town that's been tormented for years. By the crazy, naked guy who's cutting himself and screaming all night. And yet, how do they respond? Would you mind uh, moving along, Jesus? We've had enough of you. They chose prophet over people. They chose pigs over souls. And yet, look how Jesus reacts. I notice that he reacts completely the opposite of the way I would. If I just got done healing your village from a crazy, naked, demon-possessed guy uh, and you don't want me to hang around, I'm going to be a lot more like Al Pacino from Sin of a Woman. I'm probably going to take a flamethrower to this place. 
right? That's what goes on inside me, which probably explains a lot of my interactions with people. And yet Jesus left. He simply left. And here's the thing. He is a perfect gentleman in these situations. So deadly seas and demoniacs, they obey. With a single word, they depart. And yet, for an unbelieving heart, he will not do anything with it unless we let him. He won't change it. Now why, you have to ask. The reason is because love demands a choice. Otherwise, it's not love at all. Forced love, last I checked, gets you 20 to life. Right? It's not at all what he's into. And he's not about to turn us into robots. Right? If he's going to just make us, create us to love him automatically, then we're just a bunch of robots. not any kind of relationship. He's looking for relationship. Now, the next time we look at our world and we go, man, this place is really jacked up. You want to know why? Because God gave us a choice. He loves us enough to give us a choice and let us do our own thing. And yet, for these men, I look, and this is one of the saddest stories in all the Bible, because here they are, Jewish men, turned pig farmers, they've compromised. But here's the reality. Jesus is in their midst, even for the pig farmer. He's right there, willing to heal, willing to restore. They can see it in the demon-possessed man. If he'll do it for, for this guy, he'll surely do it for them. And yet, what's their reaction? We'd really like you to leave. Finally, Jesus shows up. The Messiah they've been waiting on for thousands of years shows up, and they don't even want him around. And then I wonder how many times Jesus has showed up in my life in the middle of my pig farming, sloppy, stinking mess. And I said, I am not interested, not today, Jesus. I need you to leave. I, I, can't, I can't have you in this place. I, I like this mess way too much. This is too profitable for me. Could you please get out? And the reality is for Jesus is he will give us as much of him as we want. Just as much as we desire, he will give us. But he also loves us enough to not pry, to not push, to not force his way into a situation. He loves us that much to let us come back to him. That's what real love looks like. And so, Father, thank you so much for a glimpse into real love, real relationships. Lord, thank you that the winds and the waves and the demons, they all have to answer to you. And yet, for whatever reason, Lord, because you so desire relationship with us, you gave us a choice. It's our decision whether to follow you or to not follow you, whether to let you in or to push you out. Whether they, whether they kick you right out of our village because we just can't have you messing up our profit center or whether to accept you for who you are. 
Lord, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for your long-suffering. Boy, I just praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you please stand? Close with a Christmas song, Away in a Maze. Appreciate you. We should be all back to normal next week. Um, if any of you would like prayer, I'll be up here up front with my mask on. So, you know, in the middle of our mess, by the way, as we experience the, the messes that are uh, this life. And I don't know about you guys, but in this pandemic season, I've thought, man, what a stormy, disastrous mess. It's not really any trouble for Jesus. It's really not. So, God bless you guys. <laughs>